Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we're joined by Guy Rubin, the founder and CEO of EFSTA. We're going to be covering three main topics with Guy today. First, the historic forecast management process and challenges that we face. Number two, modern forecast management. What has changed and what is possible? And third, blending forecast management process discipline in automation to achieve increased forecast accuracy. Guy, please take a moment to give a brief overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics at Major Up podcast. Well, Ray, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I'm a, a long-time listener to your podcast and uh, yeah, really, really pleased to be here today. So I suppose a little bit about uh, my background. We started Ebster in 2012, um, and we really set out to address a very simple challenge that everybody has with their CRM, which was around uh, making logging automatically logging all of their activity in the system of record itself. Very quickly, it became apparent that, that a lot of the activity that we were capturing from things like your call records, your email traffic and your calendar events was happening with people that weren't registered as contacts um, in your in, inside Salesforce. So we then extended the functionality to capture contact records and uh, we built an engine to expand the, the logging, not just of activity, but also of contacts into CRM. And then um, that and that product uh, was went viral. Uh, I think we had over 50,000 companies in the Salesforce ecosystem uh, kick off free trials of that, of that product and use Ebster to, to log their activities, create contacts and keep them up to date. And then very quickly, it became apparent that the, uh, the, the contacts that had the most activity were leading to the most likely, uh, uh, were, were leading to the most revenue. And so we uh, that really led to a breakthrough for us where we decided to try and codify what a relationship is. Uh, and we, we ended up scoring relationships um, for our customers and what we call uh, relationship intelligence. And once we could see the momentum and engagement scores uh, trend up when deals were closing, we then extended that functionality to deliver more accurate forecasts and then ultimately uh, pipeline insights and, and benchmarking on uh, uh, live pipeline against previously closed one and, and lost deals. Guy, very interesting that the start of your journey to forecast accuracy as a solution provider was the same challenge that still exists for far too many companies today, and that is is the right data in the CRM and what's the quality of that data? And we actually did some benchmarking on this topic and we found that the third largest challenge for companies regarding their forecast is still the quality of the data in their CRM, you know, the opportunity information, et cetera. So I guess here's my question. Why here, 11 years later, is data quality in the CRM still one of the biggest challenges to accurate forecasting? Yeah, it certainly is. I think I think the problem is that everyone recognizes they've got a problem with the quality of the data in the CRM. The problem is that fixing that problem is usually a you know a seven out of ten issue, and everyone's dealing with eleven out of tens. So no one ever really gets around to fixing the problem. But you know it, we're living in twenty twenty three now, and if you're still manually logging activity or or relying on reps to create contacts and keep them up to date, well then the data is never going to be consistent enough. 
Uh, and so, you know, whether you're using Ebster or any other platform to do it, it, it's not an expensive task. It doesn't take very long to set up and you really should have an engine looking after the data in CRM for you rather than relying on the very expensive sales reps to, to do that work for you. So let's double click on that a little bit, Guy, because I know that with our listening audience, people are still going to say, well, one of my biggest challenges is to date in the CRM. It's just not in-depth enough, it's not timely enough, or it's not accurate. So can you give two or three kind of ideas of how using automation, we can eliminate the sales reps not putting the data in, but it's still there? How is that done, Guy? Yeah, I mean, it's not rocket science. Every company already has the data. It's just in the wrong place. Um, So uh, every human your team have ever engaged with um, sits within your mail server or on your calendars. And so uh, we built an engine that's now a decade old, uh, and has gone through you know lots of iterations and, and evolutions where you can connect a mail server in about 20 minutes to our platform and we can go back one, two or three years and build a profile for every contact you've ever engaged with, every company you've ever spoken to. Uh, and then behind those contacts, you've got an audit trail of all of the activities that have gone back and forth. Um, and then in addition to that, um, our relationship intelligence piece uh, will tell you who in the business holds the relationship, uh, the date they last engaged and whether the relationship is trending up uh, or trending down because we give every relationship a score over time uh, and it's always out of 100. So uh, it makes it super easy to know who you've been engaging with and uh, and how strong that relationship is. Now, where that becomes really powerful is if you've recently acquired two or three other companies, uh, you can just connect up all the disparate mail servers very quickly uh, and find all the disparate relationships and highlight who within the organization you just acquired holds the relationship with the prospect you're interested in targeting. Um, so that's really how we solve the data quality issue. And while it's not the most sexy of topics, it, it gets you on a journey towards predictable revenue growth. Um, because once you've got consistent, maintained, up-to-date data, you can start relying on it. Um, and, and you know, a, a good example I would give would be uh, would be LinkedIn. Okay, so you know, we, most sales reps unfortunately haven't had a huge amount of training on how to use LinkedIn. Um, but if you look at how they, how the, pretty much every one of them will have LinkedIn open up on their desktop and they use it and they lean into it and they take advantage of the data that's on there. Well, guess what? Your CRM has the potential to, rep- to be 10x what, what you get from LinkedIn because it represents a knowledge base that's not publicly available on the internet. Uh, the problem is that, that the reps aren't just responsible for leeching off that data. Suddenly they're responsible at the moment for, for, the, for the boring admin of logging activities and creating contacts and keeping them up to date. So if you can take that burden away from them, suddenly the CRM becomes this huge knowledge base that they can lean into. And it becomes a virtuous circle because they want to spend more time in that environment because there's knowledge that they didn't know that they had. And then because they're in that environment anyway, it's not a big deal for them to progress a stage or add a note or or update a record. So you're taking all these other transactional market-facing systems, email, calendars, and you're ingesting those as signals specific to an account contact and opportunity makes sense. But you said, well, that's not very sexy, but conversational intelligence has been very sexy over the last you know, three years. Do you also look at any of that kind of voice conversations and use that as a signal and forecasting guy? Yeah, we absolutely do. I mean, we see conversational intelligence now as table stakes. I mean, you can um, you can even get it for free now these days. And th- there's so many different sources of this information. And the, the, we, we take on board any interactions with the customer and digest it into our engagement score. But that's just one, our engagement score is just one data point that we digest. So um, the biggest challenge a lot of companies have got is they've got this huge tech stack in the front office and all of the different systems are, are spitting out different signals. 
But what the challenge that they've got, and when, when we start talking about revenue intelligence, what our platform does is it digests all of these disparate signals and it analyzes the influence they've had historically over the last one, two or three years on revenue. And that gives us a benchmark that we can use to understand the gap to good in our live pipeline. This is really more for helping improve the accuracy of forecasts, so mid-opportunity funnel and below. If I go up a little bit to top of funnel, do you look at intent data as another signal into this? Yeah, we absolutely do. So um, we've recently, all the, the vendors of the intent data really struggle to understand, to be able to articulate the impact their intent data is having on revenue. We know intrinsically that when people have high intent, their, their conversion rates are higher, their sales cycles are shorter, and, and they tend to spend more money. So we know that kind of in our gut. But what we were able to prove in the recent uh, report we just produced, um, in combination with Bombora, we've been working on looking at the influence of, of intent data on revenue. Now, again, because it's not the only signal we analyze, we can look at the combination of intent data plus engagement data plus you know, product engagement, for example. Um, there's all sorts of other data points we can bring together. And what's really fascinating is looking at the influence of intent on revenue, not just on its own, but when combined, when you you know with with other signals, uh, you you get a beautiful uh, picture of what good looks like. So I'm just imagining because all I do all day long is look at data, think about how data informs better decision making. So I could look at those opportunities that I had some positive intent data signal and see that impacted close rates, cycle time, et cetera. And it's going to make me much smarter about how I prioritize my focus on top of the funnel opportunities in the future, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you can imagine these the, the vendors that are selling intent, whether it's Sixth Sense or Bombora, and there's a lot of others, the, the, the services they provide are really valuable. And, and But the challenge they've got is really trying to link that data, you know, justify the influence that's had on revenue. And, 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 and so, especially to the CFO in this kind of market, when you're, when you're providing signals at such a high, such top of the funnel signals, um, it, it can be very difficult to justify the influence it's had on revenue unless you've done the analysis. But the, the data tells us. It's funny you say that guy, because I recently hosted Chris Golick on the podcast, and he was a founder of Demandbase, which, you know, kind of a lead, one of the leading intent data providers, along with their strategic account-based platform. But he's now has a company called Channel 99, and his intent of that platform is to marry marketing investment with financial outcomes so that the CFO and CMO can be aligned. So exactly what you said, marketing has a hard time sometimes of saying, how did that impact decisions? But let's double click now on forecasting. So I love I love the report that you recently did. I think you and Pavilion kind of, did you partner on that? And, yeah, we uh, did. We, we analyzed uh, just over 3 million opportunities um, uh, across, I think, $37 billion worth of opportunities were analyzed uh, in conjunction with Pavilion and really interesting insights. And What's fascinating is how quickly the numbers change. I've just had a quick look at the next quarter's numbers, and and we've seen for the last nearly two years that the average number of stakeholders, for example, involved in a traditional sales process that leads to a close, we're talking about B2B, but across the board, has only increased at every quarter. Um, but we've suddenly seen a decrease in the last in the last three months. The number of stakeholders involved in the sales cycle is starting to come down, not up, um, which is a a really interesting uh, note to make. Guy, this is the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. So can you share some specific two or three interesting findings from that research report around metrics, things like, I don't know, close rates, sales cycle time, whatever you think was interesting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much in there. I think the um, I, obviously that the, the, 
the piece of the puzzle we're most passionate about, the, 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 the superpower, I suppose, that we have within EBSA is, is understanding momentum or engagement. And, and the influence of engagement on revenue is, is, is huge. So it's not unusual to get to the end of a sales cycle and have a good level of engagement with the, with the key stakeholders involved in the sales process. And we, we codify that out of 100. So a good level of engagement is somewhere between 60 and 80. The win rate goes up 4x if you if you can increase the momentum or engagement from good to great. Um, and so if you're at late stage in a multi, if you're, you know, if you're working a complex sales pro, B2B sales process uh, and you're at late stage, my, my advice is lean in. Uh, find reasons to, you know, have coffee with your stakeholders, to re-engage with them, to spend more time uh, with them. Uh, it has uh, relationships truly do drive revenue, and, and it's probably the most the single factor we've seen had the biggest influence on, on the numbers. Um, that's really good I, empirical evidence. You know, we all know that that's true, right? As a former CRO, you always talk about that, right? But now you've got data: four x higher close rates. Wow. We also found the number of stakeholders involved in the sales processes, you know, how multi-threaded you are, has it also has a big influence on time to close and, and, and the chances of winning, as well as average deal value. So, um, for example, if you take out the, you know, the order taking, sometimes we all get lucky and, you know, you get a phone call from someone who used you at a previous company and, and just says, you know, send me an invoice, I'm, I'm ready to buy again in my new company. But if you take those out of the, 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 the mix, the impact of uh, you can double your win rate if you can increase the number of stakeholders from three to four to five to six. Um, and that that's just by having by understanding who the real stakeholders are involved in the sales process or, or the decision making process can really have a big influence. Can I double click on that guy? Because interesting that you know having more members of the buying committee and especially the executive members increases the probability of close. I was hosting Brent Adamson on the podcast the other day. He wrote Challenger Sell and Challenger Customer. And now their data is old. It's like 2015. But they said once you got above like seven or eight people in a buying committee, the probability of buying actually went down. So do you think there's diminishing returns at some point? It does. It does. As soon as you get above, uh, it depends on the market and how big the opportunities are, the average deal values and so on. But as soon as you get past a certain line, it drops off a cliff um, and you end up with decision by committee and and no decision at all is is the usual outcome. So so be cautious about engaging with too many stakeholders. But there will be a sweet spot. and, And the answer to what is that sweet spot? It sits within your data. Okay. So, you know, it's not unusual to find a customer where they've got opportunities opening on the 1st of January and closing on the 2nd of January. But we all know that that took a three month sales cycle. So, again, we know when you started talking to that customer because we can see the email interactions. We know when you started meeting with them because we can see the calendar events, right? So, we don't need to rely on when people manually log the opportunity to understand what truly took place in the historical uh, deals that you worked on in the past. Um, and so when we onboard a customer, we go back at least four quarters and, and we can go back a lot longer and we do this analysis. So we'll show you not just holistically across the whole business, how many stakeholders and how much momentum you need with the CFO at certain stages, but we'll do that analysis down to individual divisions, departments, geographies, but even down to the individual contributors. Because actually knowing that if you've got 100 sellers, what the average coverage they need to hit quota is and whether that average coverage is reducing to hit quota or increasing is a really good lead indicator as to whether the, the team that you've got are A, likely to hit hit, hit target or and B, whether they're, they're pacing in the right direction or whether they're starting to learn bad, bad habits. I love pipeline coverage ratio to rep level. That's the ultimate, right? So, okay, 
I can't believe how quickly this time with you is going, Guy, but um, I got to talk about forecast accuracy with you. Now, I love the fact that you get the data right out of your platform, so it's continuously evolving. We do a lot of survey-based um, benchmarking research also, and the latest forecast research we did said that 91% of B2B SaaS companies are missing their new business forecasts by more than 5% and 69% are missing the new business forecast. Now this is plus or minus 69% are missing it by greater than 10% guy. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, how can you keep a job as a CRO or even a CFO with that level of forecast accuracy? Is this something that you still see in the market as a reality, like hard data does? And do your customers have a significant difference in forecast accuracy? Yeah. So when we first launched the EBSA as a revenue intelligence platform, uh, we didn't allow the reps to put in their um, their commits and upsides as, as part of the forecast because we we felt that the EBSA forecast will tell you what the number is you're going to hit. Um, so we we felt comfortable that the number that the way that the algorithms work gives us the the, the data. You know, the historical analysis will tell us how likely this deal is to close and we'll highlight to you the risks that you need to focus in on. Now, we had to make a change because uh, customers insisted on that they wanted the ability to put in their commits and their upsides, but we're always within 5% of what number you're going to hit because because the analysis and data will tell us. Uh, there, there are always exceptions. You know, if you if you have a, you know, a pandemic hits and the number starts to change dramatically or the, or the signals change, then of course there are things that you need to, to look into. But the data will tell you what you're likely to hit. I think we, we all need to recognize that salespeople are optimists in general. And so one of the things we've really focused in on is, is what we call the forecast cadence. And so when you're dealing with a larger organization, you'd be sort of shocked to hear that it's not unusual that you've got half a dozen different VPs of sales running half a dozen different uh, forecasting processes. And, and what that means is that everyone's, you know, everyone's qualification of what uh, of an opportunity is different. Everyone's, you know, some might be using medic or medpick, others aren't using anything at all. Some are using forecasting technologies, others are using spreadsheets. Some have got gut feel, you know, one-to-ones are, you know, are, can, can go anything from a very combative experience to just an arm around the shoulder. And, you know, we all just assume everything's going to be great. But look, we live in a world where, you know, bear in mind, we've just analyzed over 3 million opportunities and only 30% of opportunities opened these aren't just leads. These are opportunities that are supposedly qualified. Only 30% of opportunities opened are closing as one. And of the deals that are closing lost are spending twice as long in pipe as deals that close one. Okay. So if you think about that, the, the level of inefficiency in the sales cycle is so dramatic. What we need to do is empower the managers to provide the data they need to the, to, to the individual contributors. And so rather than it being this combative experience of, well, my deal's fine. They love me. They're definitely going to buy. Leave me alone. You know, I know what I'm doing. The, the response from the manager is, you know, well done. You're doing a great job. But let's have a look at the data. So in the, forget about what you believe. We know that if you had one more stakeholder involved in this deal, we could increase the chance of it closing by 50%. Or if we could increase the momentum or engagement we have with the CFO at this late stage, we could reduce the sales cycle by 30 days. So just looking at the data and taking it from an abstract, you know, to the specifics and going, look, look at this graphic. This is why I'm insisting that you try and get one more stakeholder involved. But this is why I'm suggesting you need to qualify the opportunity further. And, and you were asking earlier about the, the, the thing that has the, one of the things that has the biggest impact on win rates. 
is a qualification methodology. We've not seen, we've done a huge piece of analysis recently. We've got a widget that sits inside Salesforce that automatically captures Medic, MedPick, Bands, whatever you want to use. We've not seen a material difference between one set of qualification tools versus or, 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 or system versus another, but we've seen a huge impact in win rates in the same organizations when we look at the, 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 the contributors that are using and documenting their, their Medic or their MedPick or their Bands in in the system versus those that say they did but didn't actually bother putting it into the system so we've seen that have a massive impact on win rates and 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 accuracy of forecast on february 28th i did a linkedin post around forecast accuracy and the methodology i used which was a triangulation methodology and i won't bore you i'd love for you to read it and see if you agree but one of the key things is that structured sales process with really well-defined criteria to exit to the next, the gates, that really helps forecast accuracy because over time you can go back and look at which opportunities actually had those things before they progressed and what the close rate was. And you're doing it at scale in real time. Yeah, and we capture it automatically for the individual contributors. So I'll tell your community at the moment, what one of the things we're looking at at the moment is ways of using uh, conversational intelligence to automatically fill in the band and the, or the or the, the, the medic or the med pick for the salespeople inside Salesforce for them. So, you know, picking up the data, it's already, again, it's already in all your systems, whether it's in your inbox or in your conversational intelligence tools uh, or, or in your calendars, you've already got so much data um, that tells us everything we need to know. We don't need to rely on the reps doing anything because actually when a human's involved, you get inconsistencies. But my, my message to your community is, if you're not already recording this qualification process, it's not enough to tick a box and say you did it. It needs to be captured. Yeah, we're gonna end this conversation with one simple question. I have a conversation with you and it's like, this is a no brainer. Everyone has to do this, right? But I'm sure you enter opportunities yourself and you get close lost, no decision. We still have these accuracy issues we talked about 10 minutes ago. What's the inertia? What's the friction that everyone's not doing this guy? Well, we have we saw that, especially as being a European business. There's still, uh, I think, the US are ahead of us. You know, when it comes to this question of do we really need to be data driven in the way we run our sales teams, I think the US have kind of concluded on that that decision. But in Europe, it's still a question. And I think what we found is that rather than trying to eat the elephant in one sitting, what we try and do is take the customers on a journey and meet them where they are. So if you're living in a world where where you don't even have the data, let alone the data driven, and built, uh, then then the first thing we need to do is fix that. And and so we built a very simple engine that you can plug in in a day, and and it will go through your historical traffic and and fix all the data in CRM. And now you're in a situation where the team want to spend time in that environment because it now represents a knowledge base that the company can all can all lean into. Now, if you've solved that problem, the next challenge is really understanding who holds what relationships and, and most importantly, what relationships drive revenue. And, and again, the data already exists. So we then start scoring those relationships and showing the trend of engagement over time. And then and it becomes obvious and easy to understand that if I wanted that, that you know, who holds what relationship with our customer. And frankly, the bigger the business, uh, the more relationships they have, that they don't know that they have. So we take steps for the customers on this journey towards building a predictable revenue engine. And, and if you're ready for forecasting and pipeline insights, try and make it easy for the team. Don't, don't make them go into another environment. Don't try and teach them a new set of dashboards. If they've already got a set of dashboards they're leaning into, introducing one more data point around engagement or, or qualification metrics in those environments makes it super easy for them to digest 
and they haven't got to do very much change. So there are ways of going on this journey together with our customers, uh, and we try and make it as easy and bite-sized as we can because not everyone's in the, at the same stage on their journey. I love it. The journey of a 1,000 miles to forecast accuracy begins with having quality data in your CRM. Love it. Hey, Guy, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up, but I want to give the audience the chance to get to know you a little bit more on a personal basis with three quick questions. So that first question is, is there a CEO company that you think is a must-follow today? Who are you following? Oh, that's a, that's an interesting one. I'm a big fan of um, of Sam at Pavilion, um, and he's he's always got some interesting things to say on LinkedIn. Even sometimes he gets uh, gets into trouble with some of his thoughts on these things. So a big fan of, of what he's built um, at Pavilion, and um, I'm only a recent convert. Uh, you know, we only joined Pavilion uh, probably less than six months ago, but now I think my whole team are, are bought into it. And um, I think that it rarely goes a day without me promoting something that, that Sam said or, or, or that I got from the community. So big, big fan of, of, of Sam and what he's doing there. I think HubSpot are, are doing some amazing things. Uh, you know, looking at, at the progress they're making, it, it, it feels like where Salesforce were 15 years ago. And really excited to see how uh, they're running that business. And I think really one to watch. I think it's going to be a very exciting place to be. And uh, and yeah, I think it's uh, uh, fascinating to see what, what HubSpot's going to become as, as it starts moving into mid-markets. Um, so those are probably two that I'd, I'd, I'd encourage people to, to take notice of. Yeah, I saw some research the other day where HubSpot increased their CRM market share by 13% over the last 18 months. Pretty incredible. Okay, second question. Which tool not your own, should every B2B SaaS company be using as they scale? Is there a tool that you can't live without, Guy? Oh, there's all sorts of tools I can't live without. I suppose uh, I'm, I'm a little bit old school, so um, I still think the phone wins at all, for, at all times. Uh, and, and sometimes that gets lost in, uh, in a lot of people spending their lives on email. But I think coming back to, to Medic, MedPick, uh, Band, find ways of you know, qualification metrics work, and they have a, a huge impact on win rates. Um, and when you introduce them into your business, if, if my, my suggestion would be make it scarce. Don't allow everybody to take advantage of those tools because then everyone else, oh, I want to be part of that, that club as well. Can I take advantage uh, of that? Because once a team starts using it and they get better win rates, then others will want to use it too. But if it goes out there as a mandate to everybody, it becomes, oh, I've got to do more admin on this thing. And, and, and honestly, these things have find ways of capturing that data, whether it's in HubSpot, inside Salesforce, it doesn't really matter, but but capture that data, you know, at source and, and make sure that you're do, using those qualification tools out there. Wow, I never heard using demand or scarcity to create demand for a sales process as the way to do it. I love it. Last question. You're a successful B2B company founder. We have a lot of early career people listening today. What advice do you give them, Guy? As they're starting their career, what can they do today to make sure that they can become a Guy Rubin in 10, 15 years? Oh, um, well, first of all, I'm not uh, I'm not a college graduate. I left school at 16. Um, so I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. But um, my learning really took place on the job. And I, I think my, one of my concerns about the new world we live in of you know remote working and so on is... I learned my skill set by being the most junior member of, of a team when I started. And I think if, if I were to give some advice to those just starting out is find an environment that you can learn from. And, and your priority in your 20s is to have the steepest possible learning curve you possibly can. It's okay to be broke in your 20s. It's not okay to be broke in your 40s. So focus on, on learning curve, focus on development, try and surround yourself with people that are better than you, that know more than you. 
Uh, don't be afraid to ask questions and ask for help. You know, be the first to arrive in the morning, be the last to leave at night, be there to ask the more senior product guys how they operate or what they learn or how what they know or, you know, and try and learn as much as you can from those around you. And, and you know, once you take the leap to set up your own business, there's no going back, right? You can't really go and be an employee again. It's it's very difficult. So don't make that step until you've until your learning curve starts to slow. And once you do it, make sure you've got a, probably the biggest the biggest win I ever had was was finding my business partner. Um, you know, find someone you that that brings a set of skills to the table that you don't have, um, and and make sure that you want to go on the same journey together. But don't jump too soon because honestly, there's so much learning and development to be done. I. I I started working at 16. I didn't set up my own business till I was 30. And honestly, I think I did it early. So uh, I'd encourage those to find an environment where they can, that's structured, that's got learning, that's got development within it, uh, and, and really, really try and learn from your peers before you take that leap. Well, that's great advice. And it's interesting. The majority of successful founders and CEOs like yourself, that's always part of their advice is always be learning, surround yourself by amazingly great, smart people, and put into effort. Put into work. So, Guy, unfortunately, our time has come to an end, but thank you so much for being our guest on the Metric to Measure Up podcast. Thank you very much. It's been great. For our listening audience, if you're enjoying the quality of guesting content like Guy Rubin, the founder and CEO of EPSTA, it would mean the world to us to go ahead and subscribe to the Metrics Measure Up podcast on your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and give us that five-star rating because that allows the algorithms to amplify the reach so that people can gain access to people like Guy, just like you just had. Guy, thank you so much again. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.